only one chapter after this to go. And so I'm excited to, to be coming to the last things in our confession in more ways than one. Um, we have in this first paragraph, first of all, the chapter title of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is a very practical topic. It's one that the scriptures speak to uh, frequently, and it is to be used practically to shape our mind and our perspective. As we live life, uh, there's not a one of us that would not grow very weary and discouraged, uh, but the Lord has given us these great and glorious promises to strengthen us and to help us remember that there is a, a complete and total experience of redemption yet to come, that we need to be faithful and cling to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, for just a relatively short time as a watch of the night, as the vapors, as the, uh, as the flowers of the field. Those are the terms the scriptures use to describe our lives here. Uh, we have such a short time and then an eternal destiny to follow. And so we'll turn to our confession to read this first paragraph regarding this state of men after death, and it has to do with particularly the souls that God has given us, that we are not just material beings, but we are spiritual beings. We have a soul that continues on, even if our bodies uh, perish and crumble, uh, our souls uh, continue on uh, with an immortal um, existence as God has given us. And we'll look at our confession and then the scripture references to see what does the scriptures teach then about what happens to us upon our deaths. So first, this paragraph, uh, paragraph one, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. Now this is uh, another topic that confronts us. It's a good reminder to us of the importance of God's revelation, where there are many things where we could take up a subject for discussion, and in all of those, God's revealed word is what should shape our thinking. But here we have some uh, a topic that surely would serve to remind us of that. Uh, how, how would uh, we see such a plethora of opinions? People be dogmatic about their opinion about what happens after death, and here, um, upon what basis are those founded? Um, who, who of us has ever died? None of us. And so it's just another reminder, just as we, we saw with creation, uh, when we studied creation, who was there when this world came into existence? Who, who could speak to that? Only God. 
And so likewise, in terms of this matter of the state of men after death, it just shows us in sharp relief the foolishness of, of people and the foolish hearts. that They would take up a discussion and argue with God himself about something they have absolutely no way to experience or observe. Um, we, we have, uh, again, just a reminder of the foolishness and the hardness of the sinful heart. Uh, but here, here we see, again, a topic, something that's important. It's something God has spoken to, something where we're totally dependent upon God, and we see that clearly in, an, in a subject like this. And so what does the Scripture teach? I mean, we can observe this first statement, the bodies of men after death return to dust. We can, we can uh, exhume many graves and see the truth of that. That's certainly what the scriptures say as well. If you turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, in the pronouncement God gave in his curse upon Adam for being willing to pursue his own thinking and his own uh, will rather than submit to God's command, and his uh, declaration of what was reality. Uh, you remember God had said, don't eat of the fruit of this tree. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And the evil one comes, and he, he challenges the truth of that. And he says, oh, that's not true. You, you surely will not die. And uh, Eve takes of the fruit. Adam is there. She gives it to him. He eats as well. And so this was the first time in which man set aside God's word to pursue his own thinking of what disastrous consequences follow. God uh, comes, and instead of immediately judging Adam and Eve as, as he might have, he will not allow his purpose for the creation of mankind to be set aside. And so he does visit them with judgment, certainly. He, he puts a curse of, uh, against sin on the entire created order. And death enters this world through sin, as we read in Romans 5. And these callings that he gave to Adam and Eve are still theirs, and they're still binding, but they're going to be visited and marked by pain and suffering and hardship. And so the consequences of sin are impressed upon them, and yet God gives hope of redemption in declaring his ultimate judgment against this serpent who has come and tempted his, uh, his children away from him. He pronounces ultimate destruction against him, and in that statement, as we read in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your, your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see here this continuation of the purpose and plan of God. He had created Adam and Eve and told them to multiply, to be fruitful, to fill the earth, to take dominion of it. That's still... God's plan. This woman is still going to have offspring, even after this terrible treachery against the Lord God. That's still God's plan. And there's a particular individual in view 
Uh, it's not just a generic offspring, but it, it focuses on an individual at the end of verse 15. He shall bruise your head or crush your head. This offspring of the woman would be the one to overthrow the purpose of the serpent and bring about his ultimate destruction and establish the purpose of God. You shall bruise his heel. It's going to be at great personal cost and pain. And nonetheless, God is going to see his purpose accomplished. So in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is a reference back to the creation account that God created Adam and Eve. He created Adam by forming the dust of the ground, like the clay molded by the Creator, and breathed into him the breath of life. And that is how Adam was created from the dust of the ground. The reference here, for you are dust, uh, out of it you were taken, and to dust you shall return. Uh, this reference to the form, the, the body that God had fashioned for Adam uh, in his creation. Uh, now that sin has come into the world, now that Adam has broken away from fellowship with God, uh, that is the precondition of life and blessing, fellowship with God. And so on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what God had told Adam. And we see the entrance of decay and sickness and uh, mortality immediately. And we see uh, the sad refrain of death uh, that's called into sharp focus in chapter 5. As um, we, we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him. In the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. But, but notice what, what happens, how, how that intended purpose, how the blessing and the, the, the endless fellowship and, and blessing that Adam had in store for him is brought to an end in, uh, in the, with the entrance of sin. When Adam had lived... 130 years he followed a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And that begins this refrain of going through the generations of how life is terminating in death again and again and again. Uh, because of sin, because of this curse, because of man's uh, rejection of the authority of God's word. And so the bodies of men, back to our confession, after death return to dust and see corruption. That, that's not the natural state. That is the state of mankind because of sin. 
in Acts 13, verse 36, we have this very language that the confession uses in verse 36 of Acts chapter 13. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. This is now the contrast being made between David and all those who had gone before and the Lord Jesus. Although he did die, he was laid to rest in that tomb. Uh, he did not see corruption. He didn't stay dead. But rather he rose again unto eternal life. Um, but notice the language there in, in speaking about David. After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Uh, that is the, the fate of man. And you can, I'd encourage you to mark Romans chapter 5. That's a good passage to explain the causal connection between sin coming into the world and death following that. But to continue on in our confession, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. Now let's look at two passages of Scripture. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Now this very well-known verse it's in the context there at the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as he's nailed on the cross and is hanging there. You remember there were two thieves who were also crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And one of the criminals, actually both of them initially, were mocking Jesus and, and, and joining in. Uh, there, there were these uh, around the cross who were mocking him, saying, well, here you are nailed to the cross. What about all these claims that you're the Son of God? If you're God's Son, surely you could save yourself. Notice there in verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There also was an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. So we see the rulers of, of the Jewish people here. They think that they have proven their point. This couldn't be God's Messiah because we're able to kill him. He can't go on and accomplish all these promises. He can't go on and be the king over God's people. He can't be the deliverer that he said he was because we're able to kill him. And it's, it's the proof. And so that, that's why they're scoffing. You know, it's not too late, Jesus. If you still want to show that you are God's Messiah, all you have to do is just get down off that cross. And you can be the king of the Jews, as uh, that sign above him said. And that's what the soldiers also, they're joining in. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him, this is the king 
of the Jews. Now, these criminals who are hanging with him, both of them, the other Gospels tell us, initially were joining in. Yes, Jesus, if, you, uh, if you're God's son, if you're the Messiah, uh, it, get yourself down off that cross. Get us down with you. Save, save yourself and us. And this, uh, this gospel in Luke uh, only records the one because the other gospels tell us that after both had initially been railing at him and mocking him, one of them has a change of heart on the cross, hanging there, hearing what these people are saying, seeing Jesus, seeing his response to these mocking accusations. God does a work in his heart. And that's where Luke picks it up in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now that's, that's some pretty amazing faith. That's the faith that God gives. Here he, He's dying, and Jesus, right beside him, is dying. There's no question about that. And he believes that this man beside me who's dying is the one that can save me. That he is going to fulfill those promises. He is who he said he was. And you remember uh, that as we read in verse 44... Uh, and now about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole, the whole land until the ninth hour. It was uh, a very awesome uh, and very frightening scene. From noon to three o'clock, there is darkness over the land as the Son of God is being put to death. But he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in verse 43, Jesus answers him. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what happened to Jesus and that thief? They both did expire upon those crosses. They were both buried. Jesus in the, the grave there of Joseph of Arimathea, but he was actually taken down um, earlier than would typically be the case, as we, as we read. Uh, the Pharisees wanted to uh, cleanse the hill of this gruesome scene before the Passover officially began. Uh, Jesus had his side pierced with a spear just to confirm his death. Those other men had their legs broken uh, to hasten their demise. Uh, so this man surely did die. They insured him. And he, his body was certainly laid in a grave. But what does Jesus mean then in verse 43? Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If his body was in a grave, it is his soul that Jesus is speaking about, that he's going to be with him. He's going to see the glory of his kingdom uh, his faith, uh, late coming, and only exercised for a short time as he's dying, is going to be uh, rewarded and give way to sight as he enters into paradise. And it, the, the contrast couldn't be 
more stark there between uh, this dark place on a hill where these men are dying, bleeding uh, on crosses, and he's talking about paradise. That you're, we'll both be in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. And so upon death, our bodies uh, return to dust one way or the other. However, our bodies are treated or handled or disposed of. Uh, they see corruption one form or another. Uh, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. Now in Ecclesiastes verse 12, uh, we have another passage. So um, why does the confession say immediately return to God uh, rather than uh, having this layover in some other location? Well, because of what Jesus said to that thief. This very day, this very day you will be with me in paradise. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, the, uh, the writer Solomon, the wise king, uh, he's he concluding this very beautiful picture of the, the imagery here of aging, of, of being young, and the promise of youth, and the strength of youth, the hope of youth, and then how so quickly, all too quickly, health is lost. And vitality diminishes. And that there is no time. There is absolutely no time to squander. There's no time to waste on your own pursuits. In verse 1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. And the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. And the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So if that was all there was, this, this short existence on earth is so marked by trouble. It's so short. Um, it truly would be a case of just despair as the preacher goes on to conclude. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Life under the sun apart from acknowledging the God who has created us and his purpose to restore all things. But notice there in verse 7, uh, what is the conclusion of this sad tale of our body wearing out? Uh, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And so God is the one who 
uh, creates us with this immortal soul. It does not perish at our death. It continues on. Just like the thief on the cross, he would be with Jesus in paradise. Um, as the preacher here mentions, the dust returns to the earth as it was. The spirit returns to the God who gave it. Now, what's the state then of those souls that return to God? Um, what, what is that after life? Well, it, it, there are two different alternatives. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And so this is the first case. The souls of the righteous, those who are um, of God's redeemed, those that have faith in Jesus Christ, just as that man dying on the cross did, um, who are covered in the righteousness of Jesus first and foremost, but who are also being sanctified into the, the holy children of God who are called to be holy as I am holy, uh, who are called to pursue peace and the holiness without which no one will see God. Um, this reference to the righteous is, is going to be the same group of people, those who are covered by the blood of Jesus, those whose sins are washed away, those who are clothed in his perfect righteousness, uh, those who are being sanctified to bear the image of Jesus Christ more and more, uh, those who are ultimately cleansed of all sin and made holy in God's sight uh, in their own experience. All of those are the same people, the same group. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. <clears throat> this is in that great comparison between the worship of the Old Testament, where the people of God had all of the glory of, of the deliverance from Egypt, seeing the signs and wonders, the Red Sea parting, going to the mountain there at Sinai, seeing the blazing fire burning atop it, uh, sending Moses as their representative up onto the mountain, receiving the tablets written with the very finger of God. Uh, that was a glorious experience. They heard the voice of God uh, booming, the sound of the trumpet, the voice whose words uh, made the hearers beg no further messages be spoke to them, just the awe and the wonder of that. But um, as the writer of Hebrews is setting this case forth, uh, the, the believers now that Jesus has come, that the, the Son has come. Moses was a servant in the house, but the Son, uh, he is the one that is the heir of all things, as we read in Hebrews 3 um, and the end of chapter 2. If you look there at verse 18, For you have not come, that is, New Testament believers, the people of God, who had been cast out of all of the Old Testament uh, forms of, of worship, the temple service, and, and so forth. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, 
For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Uh, so that was the, the awe and the fearfulness, the holiness, uh, the terrible holiness of God Almighty there on Mount Sinai. That's not the experience that we've come to, but rather uh, rather than a sinful people gathered around the mountain to hear the standard of God's holiness that condemns them and to only have hope in the sacrifice that God pictures there in the sacrificial system, we have come so much further in terms of the history of God's dealings and provision through his covenant. Now the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come. And now we are reconciled to God through his blood, through his sacrifice. Now we are not gathered at Mount Sinai in fear, but now we are gathered at Mount Zion, another Old Testament picture. Uh, Mount Zion there at Jerusalem where God didn't terrify uh, with the declaration of his holiness, but he allowed a people to draw near to him with joy, with songs of praise, with songs of thanksgiving. So many of the Psalms in the Old Testament describe the joy of coming into the presence of God's temple, into his very presence, to worship him, having been reconciled, to present their offering and to be reconciled that their sins no longer prohibit their worship. That's, that's the experience now that we have come to. And not a physical mountain, not a physical Mount Zion, but we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, it's the heavenly counterpart of what the city of Jerusalem was always a picture of. That is the very throne room of God, heaven itself, the court of heaven, the, the assembly of those who have been made perfect in God's very presence. Uh, we've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And that's the phrase that our confession makes reference to in terms of what happens to the souls of the righteous. Well, they're received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. As we read here in Hebrews 12, our experience as the redeemed people of God reconciled through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as our high priest, we have the privilege of standing, of entering already spiritually into this gathering, into heaven itself, as Hebrews also goes on to say that he is our anchor. He is the one who has gone before. He is the one who has made a new way through the tearing of his flesh that we might follow after him into the very presence of God. And that throne is a throne of grace to us that we can with boldness come to the throne of grace, confident that we will find grace to help in time of need. 
That's the experience of those who believed in Jesus. And so in our worship, we're gathered in the presence of this heavenly assembly. Uh, we're gathered, we're joining them around the throne to worship God and to rejoice in his forgiveness and to rejoice in what he is doing. And notice in this scene of the heavenly Jerusalem that we're privileged to join by faith, um, who is there? Well, the angels, the assembly of the firstborn, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And so until, as, as we'll go on to see in our confession, there is a great resurrection day coming when the bodies will be raised back and reunited to these souls. But until then, the spirits of the righteous have been made perfect and are rejoicing around the throne of God in heaven. And so that is Hebrews chapter 12. Now we have quite a few more verses to look at. And it wasn't even enough because the American edition adds another, another couple in here, uh, which are very encouraging to look at, so I'm glad they did. But we'll, um, we'll close this morning uh, with prayer, and we'll pick up with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, continuing to look at what happens to the souls of the righteous upon our deaths. And uh, then we're going to look at the sobering truth of what happens to the souls of the wicked, uh, what, what will happen in their case. But let's um, thank the Lord for our redemption in the Lord Jesus and close with prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us what follows after, things that we could never observe, that men could never um, inductively study. Lord, you have uh, told us that these are things that the heart of man ha can't even imagine. Uh, these are things that we depend upon you to reveal to us. And so we thank you, Lord, for your kindness in telling us of these things that will come. Uh, we thank you for giving us the assurance and the comfort of knowing that what we see in this life is not the end, that the corruption and the decay that we see following death it is not the final word for our existence, but our souls as believers in Jesus go immediately to be with him in heaven, just as the thief who died on that cross was with him in paradise that very day. We rejoice that that is the blessing you have promised to give us as well. And we thank you that um, we have that encouragement in hand, that promise to uh, have confidence to live life with, uh, without fear, uh, knowing that uh, this life will only give way to a better, where all things will be made new and restored. And so help us, Lord, not to, uh, not to deny you, uh, not to cling to the things of this life, which cannot be kept, where moth and rust destroy, where, as the rich fool heard from uh, the living God in heaven, even 
if he managed to accumulate much possession for himself. Uh, he, he might very well have his soul required of him that very night. Lord, help us not to lay up treasure on earth, but to invest ourselves freely and willingly and joyfully in all that we have into your kingdom, that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and trust you to provide all other things that you know we need, that we would not um, make the, the mistake of, of living for this life, which ends all too quickly. Lord, may we, may we set our affection on things above, not on the things on this earth, where our Lord Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. We do thank you again for the blessing and the encouragement that you give us in the scriptures. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to be equipped to answer those. There are so many foolish and, and wicked opinions and lies in this world. Uh, so many uh, that the father of lies has uh, encouraged and, and loves to see multiply to weaken our faith, to, to weaken our service to you, even to call us away from the Lord Jesus if, if possible. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us with your word, that we would have that firm foundation for our faith, and that we would remember the encouragement of the Lord Jesus not to fear what men can do, for they can only kill the body, but to fear rather the only one with a power worthy to be feared, to fear the God of heaven who is able to destroy both body and soul. Lord, we pray that you would... Um, Cause us to keep our eyes fixed upon you and not on man whose breath is in his nostrils. That we would not uh, live in fear of, of anyone. And we thank you, Lord, that you have told us, having recognized you, having seen your awesome power, that you welcome us to yourself. Uh, not only as the almighty God, but as our loving Father. And you have told us that... Perfect love casts out fear, that we do not need to live in terror of you or of that awesome power which is able to completely destroy. Uh, Lord, you have called us to trust you and to live lives of, of joyful service to you, confident of your love and your blessing. Lord, we thank you that because of this, we can live without fear in that sense. Lord, please help us as we gather to worship you with the rest of your people in this place. Please stir our hearts away from the, the affections of this world that so easily fill our minds. Please help us, Lord, to recognize the great importance and the privilege that we have of gathering with those who are in heaven, uh, that you open the, the curtain of heaven that you receive us as a congregation into your presence and you allow us to join in the worship of heaven as we sing your praises, as we hear your word proclaimed. Lord, we pray that you would come and visit our hearts by your spirit and bless us and open us, Lord, to the conviction of your word. Make us more yours, uh, 
to bear your, your likeness and your image. Thank you again for the truth that you have spoken and for giving us these promises. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.